Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google, pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. talked about the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration many times on this podcast. Whether you are a teacher, a parent, or a clinician, you are likely in some ways working on a team. And when we're on a team, we have to work together. So I was thrilled when this interview came across my email. I had the team behind the ABA and OT podcast, Mandy and Aditi, reach out to me and see if we wanted to swap some interviews. I would be on their podcast and they would be on my podcast. And I was thrilled because their podcast is all about interdisciplinary collaboration. Mandy is a BCBA and the director of Fit Learning Australia, and Aditi is an OT and the director of Fit Learning Labs in the Chicagoland area. So Mandy and Aditi as this BCBA and OT team talk about how important it is to collaborate and how these two fields can really work together. Well, today we're even going a little bit deeper than that and going beyond just interdisciplinary collaboration. They are talking about precision teaching with us today and talking about what precision teaching is and how you can utilize it for both academic goals and OT-related goals. This is a really fun episode. I honestly could have chatted with them for a long time because there's a lot to learn under this umbrella of precision teaching. And they give a lot of great real-world examples on how you can shift your mindset and the way you work on goals by using a precision teaching framework. So let's go ahead and jump in. Hi, Mandy. Hi, Aditi. I am so thrilled to have you both on the podcast today. Thank you. Great to be here. I I probably say this every episode that I'm excited about this topic, but I mean that with a little extra enthusiasm today because today we're going to be talking about precision teaching. And we've talked about this a few times on the podcast. And every time we do, I get a lot of messages and emails of people hungry for more. So I'm I'm super thrilled to have you both and to have kind of the perspective of both a behavior analyst and an OT on precision teaching, I think is just beyond valuable. So thank you both in advance for sharing your expertise today. For those kind of new to precision teaching and the ABA world, would you mind giving an overview of, of what precision teaching really is? Sure, I'll start there. Um, I, I guess I start by saying that I come from, for want of a better word, a traditional ABA background, um, and that was my initial training doing discrete trial instruction. And so I found my way to precision teaching because I went for a 
the the IPTC conference in Chicago in 2014, um, mostly actually to meet Karen Pryor, who's one of my heroes in the world. Um, but I just got really lucky and met the directors of Fit Learning while I was there and learned a lot about precision teaching. So Rick Kubina was my chart father. And well, I just adopted him. I don't know if he adopted me. <laughs> um, I had read a lot about precision teaching and I had done, you know, I'd kind of prowled in a bit with my daughter myself. And um, so really precision teaching is, I guess, for the behavioralists out there, is um, having a student respond um, to one instruction, so more in line what we call a free operant, and um, not be reliant on a, uh, a prompt to continue the instruction. So that's the fluency side of precision teaching. Um, but if you know, to really simplify things, it's really the use of a standard acceleration chart to, um, to take data on behaviour. And um, so when you sort of turn your mind to the standard acceleration chart, some people call it the scary blue chart, <laughs> um, basically what you're charting on that chart is a count per minute or a count per time period of behaviour that occurs in in an interval of time. Um, So sometimes that can be anything from, um, you know, assisted daily living goals to reading goals to um, math facts, any behaviour that you can measure, you can put on a standard acceleration chart. And so if you're using a standard acceleration chart, you're generally doing precision teaching. And um, the amazing thing about a standard acceleration chart is you can put um, behaviour on there that occurs thousands of times a day versus something that occurs once a day. And so no matter how much behaviour is occurring in a day, you can compare it on a chart. And so it's a really extraordinary tool when you get to use it. And it will change your life as a behaviour analyst and an OT and a speech <laughs> pathologist. Um, you'll never be the same when you look at behaviour on a standard acceleration chart. So. If I had to simplify all of those words, it's really the use of the standard acceleration chart to um, count and measure behavior. For my teachers and parents listening, what is a standard acceleration chart? Yeah, that's a, a good point. So people might be familiar with a what we call like a stretch to fill graph, you know, like an XY chart where generally along the bottom of the chart is um, time either days or sessions across the bottom and up the side is some other measure like generally percent correct. Um and those charts for lots of different reasons, and I would refer to all of Rick Cabina's work if you wanted to look why stretch to field graphs, you know, aren't a good um, use for, particularly in the field of, um, you know, of autism intervention. But um, so a standard acceleration chart is a semi-logarithmic chart. And so it allows you, what that does is it allows you to put any amount of behaviour that's occurring within a 24-hour period or a week or a month on the chart and compare those two dots on the chart. Obviously, when you are measuring behavior that goes, let's just say something that goes above 100%, um, you can't chart it on a stretch to field graph. You can only you can only chart you know, certain amounts of data and you can't compare, um, you can't use time on the standard mm-hmm. acceleration chart, a count per minute on a standard acceleration, sorry, on a, on a stretch to field graph. So a standard acceleration chart is just something that allows you to chart any behavior and compare that behavior over time. Awesome. That was a great explanation. You know, when I first learned about precision teaching, when I when I became a behavior analyst, I was a teacher at the time. So when I learned about precision teaching in grad school, I realized I had this huge light bulb moment that I never look at time. Like never. I teach to accuracy and that's it. But I never consider how long it takes to complete a response or how many responses can be done in a certain time period. And I realized what a massive disservice that was doing to my students. Yeah, I mean, time is everything, you know, in life in general. Um, you, you brought up a really good point there because everywhere else in life, time matters. You know, if you, I'm a, an athlete and if I said to you that, you know, I run 100 metres, you wouldn't be very impressed unless <laughs> I told you how long that took because that could take a day or it could take, you know, 12 seconds and those two um, differences are very, very important. And particularly what we know about fluency and about, you know, rate of response, um, you know, it's it's important to know how long it's taking someone to do it. It's important to know how many errors they're making as well and how many correct responses. But a really important measure is how long that takes. And, and things like reading fluency, um, you know, all of those things are really important measures. And so when you look at percent correct, like saying something got 
correct. It doesn't tell you anything about how many corrects were, you know, performed, how many errors were performed and what, what were the errors compared to the corrects. And um, so, yeah, a, a percent, you know, chart really doesn't tell you anything about what the learner is able to do um, over time. And so it's missing, you know, a really fundamental measure. And it's, you know, really as um, for my own daughter, it, um, it really changed her life when I moved to looking at how many responses she was engaging in. And, um, and what made the, a significant difference is that when you move, say, from discrete trial instruction, generally to fluency-based instruction, in, in other words, you know, lots and lots of practice, all of a sudden the number of errors that kids make is not nearly as important when you're doing a lot more responding. And so, um, yeah, that, that really changes your opinion of a learner when you see the amount of pausing um, that occurs within, you know, within behaviour. And um, on a chart, it gives you a really good picture of improved performance over time. And that the, the slope of the chart will tell you a lot about what's occurring in the instructional environment. And on a standard, so on a, a stretch to fill graph or an XY um, chart, um, those slopes of the lines are, you know, are really deceiving for a number of reasons. But that I won't talk about that now. But yeah, it will change you as an instructor when you start to put things on a chart. And I had to do that when I moved from discrete trial instruction to um, to using the standard acceleration chart. Initially, I just put all of my data um, on a standard acceleration chart, and then I moved to fluency based instruction. And wow, what a difference when you compare that type of instruction on a standard acceleration chart. It looks very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that point you made about being less worried about the errors because when I talk to teachers about fluency-based instruction and some ways to even start just probing this in your classroom and trying this and like, well, how am I going to track how am I going to track corrects and incorrects at the same time? I'm like, we're not we're not really so worried about incorrects because we're going to know that when we see corrects go up in that time interval. And I think it makes, you know, so many of the struggles of a classroom teacher like data collection is challenging. My kids, you know, we have a lot of escape maintained behaviors around academic tasks. Like to me, fluency instruction almost solves those because data collection is very simple. And I, I historically see kids truly love this type of activity because it's something they know how to do. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I think one of the things that I know about all the students that I've worked with um, both before and after I did um, fluency-based instruction using a standard acceleration chart is that it's super fun to do things quick. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that. But generally if you can do something quick, it's easy and effortless. And and that is the goal in fluency-based instruction is that you're working on goals that the learner can engage in already and they just get faster at it when they're doing more of it. Um, but yeah, the thing that you said there about tracking correct scenarios, I think, you know, as um, someone if you can find your way to getting someone to assist you to a standard acceleration chart, all of a sudden, not that you want, you know, most people that are in this field are already extraordinary people wanting to do extraordinary things with the learners that they're with. And, um, but all of a sudden, when you can see right in front of you, a dot right in front of you immediately on the chart, um, and, and corrects and errors unfolding as you chart, honestly, it makes you, uh, taking data becomes a lot easier and it seems a lot you know, um, effortless when all of a sudden you are, wow, my student just, you know, I did a times two acceleration over two days. In other words, they improved 100% across two days. Um, it really motivates you to be able to do that because it's actually not that hard. There are lots of tools in place to make data collection easy, even in a classroom. And um, not that that is my background, but I work very closely with Kimberly Barons, who did a lot of training of teachers in classrooms. And of course, precision teaching you know, came from teachers wanting to share their data and their um, their discoveries in the classroom between each other. And, you know, the amazing thing about the standard acceleration chart is it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So you can pick out someone's chart on the other side of the world, which obviously I do because I'm in Australia and Daddy's in Chicago, um, and pick up the chart and without knowing anything about that student um, prior to that looking at that chart, know a lot about them within minutes. Um so it's a very powerful tool and a, a very small amount of our, at least the, you know, behavior analytic field use it. And, you know, I still scratch my head as to why. And I think it's just because of the response effort involved in learning how to chart. Um, and and, and maybe, that's, maybe that's all it is. 
you know, I'd love to hear from each of you within your, you know, practice and the clients you work with, um, how you utilize precision teaching and specifically what types of skills, because I think, you know, I'm, I'm a visual learner, which is funny that I host a podcast, which is not necessarily (laughs) visual, but you know, I, I always love like the ideas, right? The like, what, how could I put this into action? So, and I know other people do too. So hearing like, Hey, I could see myself using this. And I think, you know, DT, especially hearing from an OT on how to utilize this would be really, really helpful. Well, my story is a little less technical. So I actually ran across precision teaching during the ABA certification. And it was actually my last class with Dr. Kim Behrens. And the minute I I learned about it, my eyes lit up and I was like, what? What is this? I, I've never <laughs> heard of it. Because, you know, I'd, I'd heard of ABA, obviously, but I never... I imagine there was a chart that had this visual application, which is really speaks to OT because we're so visual. And I was like, this is brilliant. And then, um, you know, I got involved with fit learning because of my son and uh, started using the chart. So for about three years, I used it in the fit learning lab. And I also used it with my private clients in OT because I wanted to see how effective it was for OTs. And I mean, aside from the initial learning of how to use a chart, it was profound for me, just profound. I, you know, like you both mentioned, time, we never consider time. We are a percent correct sort of profession, which has so many limitations, which I was not aware of. So those two elements right there made it really profound in practice. But then, uh, you know, you both know the big, big issue in OT is data. We don't know how to collect it. We don't know how to share it. We certainly don't know how to use it. So, and that's something nobody's ever taught us. So that's sort of how it started for me. And I was like, I, this has to change. And to be honest with you, for about three years, I was in hiding. I, you know, I knew this science, but I didn't want any OT th- to know that I knew anything about ABA because I was so afraid <laughs> of the backlash, honestly. That's really what it was. And then about, you know, like now, what is it, like six months, Mandy, when I reached, I stalked Mandy for about four years. And then <laughs> I think it was six months ago, I called Mandy and I'm like, Mandy, I really have to get this in the hands of OTs because it's so important uh, for us as a profession and for collaboration. And that's sort of how... We came together and, of course, we decided to do our podcast and share precision teaching for OTs. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at can you share a little bit more about how it, you said it, you know, it really changed your practice and how you looked at, you know, goals and clients. Like mm-hmm. what did, what did that look like? What did that process, what kind of decisions did it help you make or, you know, choices that you made with clients that maybe you wouldn't have had if you didn't utilize precision teaching? Well, I'll give you a very specific example. I have, I had a student who could not um, pull his chair to the table. He didn't have hand strength, didn't have coordination, motor planning, all the OT buzzwords you can think of, didn't have any of that to actually complete that process. And I was struggling for a long time trying to teach him how to do it. Um, Either he would grasp the chair, um, but then couldn't lift himself and scoot forward, or he would try to scoot forward and not grasp the chair. And so with precision teaching, what I learned to do was break down those component skills, which we typically don't do in OT. I mean, we do, you know, a task analysis, activity analysis is what we call it, but it's certainly not to that precise level. So I learned to do that. And first, I just measured how long does it take for him to find where to hold the chair. So I just took data on that. Then I took data on can he lift the chair 
as he scoots in. Then I took data on, okay, how many times can he actually do it together? Like, so putting all these pieces together as an OT, that would have taken me probably six months. I wouldn't have known how to do it. I was able to teach him within one week or two weeks, just using data. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I shared it with other therapists and they were like, how did you do that so fast? And then I had two or three therapists call me uh, through Rick Cabina and they were like, you know, we're OTs, we're interested in, in charting. Can you help us? And I was like, imposter syndrome completely. I was like, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I know enough <laughs> how to teach it. But I knew how profound it was. Even um, a goal from one of my students is cutting with scissors. You know, we do a lot of scissors. Um, gluing, cutting, pasting, that sort of activity in the school system. And the student, all I did, he he couldn't grasp the scissors. All I did was have him practice, time to practice of grasping it properly. First I did that. Then I was measuring how open and close, how fast he could do that. So like taking data on those component skills made such a huge difference for me as an OT. And then, of course, I saw it um, materialize into, you know, client outcomes and happy teachers and parents. That's and awesome. I currently work in the school system and I'm using it. Um, I dare say the S word. I'm using it with sensory suggestions, let's just say. Like, so I have a student right now who has vocal outburst, and the teacher says to me, you know what, can you um, offer some sensory strategies for this? And I was like, sure. Can you take some baseline data for me? Aren't you guys proud of me? I love it. Baseline data. So I was like, tell me how often he's doing it in, you know, English or whatever class period. And I was able to take that and I put it on a chart. And then I was like, okay, now um, how about we try gum? Because that's a frequent, you know, sensory strategy we use in schools. I'm like, okay, so I would like you to give him gum and then... I'm going to take data on how often he was vocalizing. Um, now, I'm not going to go into the rabbit hole of that, you know, inc- incompatible behavior and replacement level. I, if you just look <laughs> at it in the surface level of, from an OT st- standpoint, I am looking for a strength- sensory strategy. This is what I'm suggesting. But the key is OTs never know whether they work or not. Mm-hmm. I was able to tell the teacher it's not working or it is working. That's huge. Um yeah, and, and and I think that helps give OTs a better name, too, because this is what's happening. OTs are recommending strategies. It's sort of just throwing things at the wall, right, just trying to figure out. Nobody knows if it works or not. And then what ends up happening, OTs get a bad name because they're like, you're recommending all this, but we don't know if it works, and it's not evidence-based. So that right there, to me, is just so powerful and profound, Um but it's interesting the backlash I get from teachers. About? They're like, wait, you want data? They're yeah. Like, nobody's ever asked them that, right? Yeah. Most OTs are like, oh, let me give you a move and sit question. Let me. And I was one of them. Like, quite frankly, I was because I didn't know any better. But now that I do, I'm like, I'm happy to give you the move and sit question, uh, cushion to try out. But I need to know if it's working. So and at the end of the day, that's going to make everyone's life better, you know, first yeah. and most important, that child, but, but all the staff too, like we don't want to be running around with a seat cushion all the time or giving kids gum all day if, if it's not helping. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would tell the teacher. I'd say, look, I don't want you to do more work than you need to do. This yeah. is not working. I don't want you to stop running around trying to make it work. So yeah, I think it's made a profound difference. And that's what my goal is to, you know, get it into OT practice. I love that. You know, I want to jump back to your example about scissors because I think that's something that, you know, a lot of kids work on. Can you talk through a little bit what what exactly that looked like when you said, you know, we worked on picking up the scissors and grasping? Like what are those what are those time intervals look like? How are you practicing that for people trying to kind of visualize what that that whole process is really looking like? Sure. So, um, you know, let's just call the student Johnny. So, uh, with Johnny, he has Down syndrome and he um, in the OT world, I would say he has less awareness of his hands um, and therefore has difficulty grasping scissors or doing the, those type of fine motor activities. So my goal for him was to A, grasp the scissors properly because he didn't know how to do that, um, and then obviously use them. 
So breaking it down to really small components, the first thing was um, increasing strength, increasing awareness, and then it was the actual grasping. And then it was building fluency with that grasping. So I would put the scissors in front of him and we would practice. I'm like, okay, 10 reps. Um, Johnny, I'd like you to pick up the scissors and put them on properly. So every time he did it right, um, he would get an M&M. He loved M&Ms. And then, um, you know, we just practiced that for 10 reps. And then I would take data on it. I'd time it. So in one minute, how many times did he do it right or two minutes, whatever um, the duration was. That's sort of how we just tried it. So building that fluency, that's a component that's missing in OT. We teach individualized skills, but we are not cognizant of fluency. Only in like reading or visual tracking, I've noticed mm-hmm. that. But anywhere else, we're not really teaching it. So getting fluent, those really small component skills is what I try to work on. And so once he's got that, then um, from an OT standpoint, I had like, you know, marked it with a P of this part has to be up and this has to be. So I built in a lot of prompts, visual prompts. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, okay, now I'm going to try just a random pair of scissors. Here's a, you have a minute, go ahead and put those scissors, grasp them properly. And I would see how we would do. So I can see if it's generalizing. So that was huge. The chart, I was able to see the skills that I was teaching, were they generalizing to other avenues? Does that make sense? Is that answering yes. your question? Yeah, I love that. I like, I love hearing, you know, you talk through how, because it, it is a different approach. And I think that's what I, that's what I love about precision teaching as well. Not only that time component, but really breaking down, uh, you know, that skill into the components and looking, okay, what's the composite skill? What's the big goal? But there's a million little building blocks and let's start with one building block, not, you know, the whole tower and, for, for really all kids, that is such an effective best practice and such a mind shift that sometimes people have to have. Well, and I, I would add, though, you know, OTs, we look at, we look at things a little different lens, too, because we look at things with two facets, right? The first is, can I fix and adapt the situation so they can get immediate access and participate? That's the one thing that we do. And then there's remediation. How can I help? you know, fix this problem, help them improve. So there's always two angles that we're looking at, Mm -hmm. um, especially in the school setting, because I'm trying to get them to participate right away. You know, we don't have time to wait um, because they need to engage in participation with the classroom. So, So with this student, you know, with the scissors example, again, I worked on that and building fluency, but I also gave him a pair of scissors in the classroom that he could use, which had those visual prompts in, in the interim. So you're able to do both. And that, I think, for an OT is also really big because, you know, a lot of them are like, well, I'm not always trying to change their skill level. I'm just trying to adapt the situation to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think, I think a lot of teachers naturally do that too, you know, especially mm-hmm. when we're looking at kids maybe in an inclusion setting or a resource room, we want to give them tools to be successful, but then we also want to build up those skills so maybe we can fade those tools out and they don't always rely on that. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I realized because I was a sort of fit precision teacher before I was just a precision teacher, I realized when I start doing it in OT practice how versatile the chart is. And Mandy can probably share a million more examples than I can, but you know, I, I got so stuck in it has to be used this way, but you can use the chart however you want. Um, I just got involved with um, an adult client and we're measuring endurance for him for in standing. He has edema, which is um, basically, you know, you get pulling of fluid in your feet. So you get swelling. And so we're trying to increase the endurance of standing to reduce the edema in his feet. So on the chart, I was able to chart duration of standing and then measure the circumference of his foot to see if the swelling is going down. Interesting. And just talking to other ABA therapists who are precision teachers, I was able, they were able to help me to figure out how to do it. So I guess my point is it's so versatile and it's not just for, you know, working with pediatrics. I've used it in a variety of arenas. 
Mandy, I would love to hear some of the, you know, ways you utilize PT and especially some of, you know, some of the types of skills that you're working on with your clients. Huge question, right? How much time do we have? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I, how long do I have? We use a chart for everything. So, I, I mean, for those of you who can't visualize what a chart is, it's um, 20 weeks on one page um, and there is a line for every day and you chart dots generally dots for corrects and crosses for errors. You can, you can, you can chart anything on a chart. But um, so anything that you can count over time, you can put on a chart. And it doesn't matter how long um, you're observing the behaviour for, whether that is one second or a whole day, you can put it on that day that you're observing the, the behaviour on. Um, you, there's also weekly charts and monthly charts. And for anyone that's really interested, there is an amazing Facebook page if you search um, COVID and standard acceleration charting um, you will find that people around the world are, are charting um, COVID on standard acceleration charts and that the, uh, the the brains behind those charts are extraordinary you want to learn more you should hang out with those guys <laughs> um, but data on a standard acceleration chart looks very very different a semi-logarithmic chart that's very very different to a, norm, a normal XY chart so it gives you a really good picture of country by country what's occurring around the world um, so if you can count it you can put it on a chart. So everything from, uh, where do I start? So obviously reading goals, so letter names and letter sounds. I guess one thing I wanted to add to the picture just while I tell you all the other amazing things that you can put on a chart is that, you know, over time, teachers and other people using standard acceleration charts learn a lot. That's the thing about standard acceleration charts is the amount of discoveries you make. And because, you know, I wasn't, I've only been in precision teaching for about six or seven years. I wish I was around when, you know, um, and, and of course, there are people around the world sharing charts and knowledge. But, um, you know, traditionally, teachers would share information about, okay, how did you go when you, um, you know, let a kid engage in letter sounds, and they could do it at like 50 sounds per minute, versus when they could do it at 100 sounds per minute. And what they found is, wow, you know, when they can learn their letter sounds to like 100 per minute, they never lose it. Like they get 100 per minute and three months later you can test it and they can still do it at that rate. And so, you know, one of the things that precision teachers and in particular fit learning because they've been around for like, you know, two and a half decades with thousands and thousands of learners and, of course, we share all of our, you know, sort of data is we have all of these aims on, how, you know, how many times per minute does a student do it and therefore generate that skill in other skills? Does it show up in higher level skills and does it retain over time? And this, so I'll go back to what you can teach and then I can come back to that because it was a big move for me when my daughter went from and the students that I worked with went from traditional discrete trial instruction to fluency-based instruction um, and generalisation and maintenance of those skills changed dramatically. So um, going back to what you can chart, I chart everything from my staff performance um, we chart um, parent um, showing up on time, for instance, or any of the behaviours around being an extraordinary um, parent in a program. So you can take data on parents, their ability to follow through on goals at home. We can You can track things like, for instance, approach behaviours. If you decide you define a whole lot of behaviours that you want parents to do more of, you can chart them on a chart and look at what their performance is over time. You can put math facts on there. You can put weight trials on there if you're training a whole lot of like early attending skills, for instance, like um, teaching kids to wait in a chair for 15 or 20 seconds so you can instruct them or teaching them to make, you know, um, sustained eye contact. You can chart that. Um, you can chart any academic skill. You can teach all of your ADLs. And just as um, Aditi was talking there about... Um, Oh, sorry, if ADL, does everybody know about that? Assisted daily learning skills. I had to learn that when I started working at <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, I love when the acronyms are clarified. <laughs> self-care skills. Um, so, for instance, uh, I have been doing a lot of um, self-care because I do work with kids um, on the spectrum. A lot of fit learning um, work with kids in the mainstream, but in my practice, my real area of passion is autism. And so, um, so we do stuff like shoe tying. And shoe tying is a, for anyone that's taught it, you will know it's a really, really complex skill, particularly with kids with, you know, really challenged fine motor skills. So, um, you know, I have had profound um, success teaching kids to tie their shoes using precision teaching and what that would look like. Obviously different, um, you know, whether you're forward chaining, starting at the beginning of tying the shoe or, you know, starting at the end of the shoe tying process where the bow is already tied. But, you know, one of the things that, um, you can do as you would in sort of any form of task analysis is take baseline data and work out which components of the shoe tying can the kid already do 
Um, and you can either work on those components separately or you can build them together. But with the student that I just did this with recently, he couldn't do any of those components. So literally we just took data. So generally, Aditi talked about one to two minutes, but that is a really long period of time in a standard acceleration chart um, for kids that don't have really strong fine motor skills. Engaging in a behaviour for, you know, more than 30 seconds is really effortful and you don't want that. You want kids to be able to do things effortlessly. So in shoe tying, let's just say you were starting with a kid that had no shoe tying skills. How you would do that is you literally set a timer. You have a counter. So those golf counters are invaluable as a precision teacher. Yeah. <laughs> if you come into our clinic, you see them everywhere in every colour and every shape and size. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, those little golf counters that count numbers, right? So you set a timer, you say three, two, one, if you're just going to teach the first part of the component skill. And literally the first part of a component skill of shoe tying is picking up the laces. And so, um, you know, if you want the kids to be able to grab at the laces and pick them up, and be able to hold them with strong pincer grip, you'd go, okay, you'd show them how to do it once, you'd practice it with them, you can prime them and prompt them how to do it, and then you go, three, two, one, let's pick up the laces. Pick them up, drop them, pick them up, drop them, pick them up, drop them. And you count corrects and errors and prompts over, say, a 15-second time interval. And, you know, what you would generally do is compare that to either an aim that you already had or you would get a proficient shoe tire to do it for you or you do it yourself and you go, I can do that skill perfectly at about, you know, 50 responses per minute, of often more than that in that exercise, between 50 and 60 per minute. So therefore, I want if I want my learner to get that and never lose it, I also want them to be able to do it at that rate. And so, you know, you start by reinforcing however many is, you know, the first number that they do, say 10 or 15 responses, and then you go, okay, right, now your personal best is like 12. We're going to try and get 13. Are you ready? You know, pick up the speed. Ready? Let's do that. <laughs> and three, two, one, go. Good. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. And you count again, correct scenarios and prompts. And and over time, kids get better at it. So precision teaching is about improved performance over time and rapidly too because in that kind of goal, you can get, you know, four or five or six, ideally 10 opportunities in a very short period of time, 15 seconds times 10, you know, not very long. And kids love it because they get better. They're getting a lot of praise, a lot of feedback, a lot of reinforcement, as opposed to, say, traditional discrete trial instruction, which might be practicing it five or ten times. In that little example that I gave you there, the kid might be doing it 300 times in just a few minutes. So you can understand when you get that amount of practice in a short period of time and you're doing that daily, you get crazy improvement in skills very quickly. And that's, you know, that's one component of shoe tying. But the next step would be, you know, to cross the laces. And so then you would teach, okay, pick up the laces and cross them. Good, drop them. Pick up the laces and cross them. Drop them. Good. And and over time, then you're building a cumulative skill um, of those two skills. And then you keep doing that right through the shoe tying process. And, um, you know, very quickly, within a number of weeks, you know, this little boy that I was working with just recently was able to fluently tie his shoes, even though his fine motor skills were deficient. And we were working on, you know, what big six skills and other things in the background, other fine motor component skills. So that's what it looks like. The use of a timer, a clicker to count correct. Generally, we tally errors with a pencil. And then at the end of that timing, on a standard acceleration chart, you put the amount of time, it's called a timing floor on the chart, how long you are working. You convert it to a permanent rate. So it's 15 seconds, you times it by four, and you chart that on the chart. And you will see you get all these stacked dots. If you do the, the skill five times, you'll be able to see as you go the improved performance on that day of that skill. But the almost the most important thing, it's great to see it getting better, but like if you see over a couple of days, and generally precision teachers will make daily changes, that it's not improving, then you do something called a, you know, a slice back. Like you have to go to a lower level skill because this learner is not making any progress and you see it immediately on the standard acceleration chart before your eyes. So it's such a powerful tool to stop you teaching when you're not having success. And like some of the ABA programs that I've been involved in, this is no criticism at all, but I lived in America for a year and I was based in Indiana and it was such a busy ABA school. You know, there were hundreds of students in that school. Very often, you know, teachers didn't get time to put their data on an XY graph for weeks at a time. Yeah. And so, you know, I was watching my daughter not make any progress for like two weeks at a time. And then I would say, where's the data? And they'd be like, oh, we're going to get to it. Even then it was on a chart that 
you know, it wasn't, it was a percent correcture. And so it wasn't really telling me that much information, but like that's two weeks of time. And let me tell you, those ABA schools, you will know, lost cost a lot of money. Yeah. Like if you're in a full-time enrollment as a non-resident in America, yeah. it's thousands uh-huh. and thousands of dollars a week. <laughs> so, you know, you don't want two weeks to go by when your kid's not making any progress. And also it's not very fun for the kid when things are not getting better and easier. So, so I guess there's so many good reasons um, to learn how to use a chart and see what your data looks like in a chart. I promise you it will change you profoundly as a teacher, as an OT, as a speech pathologist. Um, so, yeah, so I think I gave you examples there. I chart my own data, self-management data, nail picking, all, um, you know, really a lot of um you know, centers around the world will often use standard acceleration charts for, you know, problematic behavior or reduction behavior, behavior you want to reduce. So, you know, self-stimulatory behavior, stuttering, um, self-injury, aggression, all of those things. It's, you know, one of the things about a chart is you just obviously can chart over time. So whether you are taking an hour interval of time or a whole day, that same data can go on the same chart. And you cannot do that on, um, you know, on an XY chart if you're charting responses um because you can't put on the same chart a thousand which would be a huge chart <laughs> and one count on that you know on that y-axis um so yeah you can put anything that you can think of um if you can count it you can put it on a chart oh my gosh I love I like love your enthusiasm on this I'm like let's all go chart data now <laughs> <laughs> well when I first started to do this I went crazy. I charted everything that I was doing, like how many books <laughs> I was reading. You know, one of the things that um, there's an amazing um, doctor within our organization called Kendra Newsom, and she taught me. I was I'm one of those people that you know switches tasks a lot. Like I'll be working on a project of some sort, or and I go, oh, I'm I forgot to check my social media. Or I you know I oh my goodness I forgot to send that email. So for a little period of time, she taught me how to you know measure task switching. Um, so each time you had either a thought to change or you did change tasks, um, you know, you just self-monitor and click that. And that changed my behavior so profoundly, just self-monitoring my own task switching. So, you know, I went crazy on measuring my own data because I just became so aware of things that I wanted to improve, increase, increasing, for instance, the number of articles I wanted to read on a subject or the books I wanted to complete within an interval of time. Um, for my own staff, we chart a lot of data um, on their performance. Their, um, their, we take audits on their ability to use these procedures and we chart that data. For instance, how many times can they reinforce in a period of time? And we know what our aims are, how many times we like to issue praise in a session. Um, and so we know when a, a coach is really fluent by how much praise, how many praise statements they're issuing in an interval of time. Um, so anything you can think of that you want want to get better or want to want to improve or reduce you can put on a chart and it it, it would change who you are as a human being <laughs> so that you know and there was one other thing I wanted to add there too Sasha yeah, and I, I had a pit before and forgot what I wanted to say is that <laughs> one of the things about ABA that I learned is that um you know there's a lot of empirically validated procedures within ABA and within discrete trial instruction as well. But guess what? Percent correct is not one of them. That is not an empirically um, validated measure of performance. Nowhere ever has anyone, you know, made percent correct an empirically validated measure. Rate of response is the main measure that in our field of, um, of you know, of the, that is empirically validated. Like if something is in, increasing over time, that's, that's rate of response over time, that is a measure so, um, you know, I often, I know I've had professors in the past that have been really critical about my move to precision teaching because they, they think there is no empirical validation in the, in, in the standard acceleration chart. But the standard acceleration chart measures rate of response and that is empirically validated. And so, yeah, so it's, it's something I, I am passionate about. You said that because it really changed who I was as an instructor and the students that I work with profoundly, not just a little bit. And um, so, yeah, I... I try and share this wherever I go. When I show parents how to chart, because kids can learn how to chart, parents can learn how to chart, changes them too and their understanding of their own children. Um, so, yeah, it's a really it's an amazing tool. Anybody that puts their hand up, I reach out and I help them learn how to chart <laughs> and it changes them and the students that they work with. Well, you know, if I can chart, anyone can chart. So <laughs> I'm an OT. I had no experience with data, um, but it's really not hard at all. I think that's one of the myths about charting. It is so in the school system where I work, you know, obviously I don't have as much time as ABA therapists do with 
um, students. So I teach uh, teacher aides and paras to chart for me. And then older students, I do have them chart, like my own kids, I have them chart their own behavior. Um, so if I can teach people to chart, and if I can chart, anyone can chart. It's very easy. <laughs> and now there's also a lot electronic versions. Um, I know, Mandy, you've used both. I tend to use more of the paper. Um, so there are obviously other options if you're not a big charter. Yeah, I used to use um, Chartlytics, but they it's currently not, Chartlytics, which is, what is it called now? Sorry. Central Reach, I think. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's currently not available in Australia anyway, oh, um, but I used okay. to use that for all of my organisational data because all of your finances can also be put on a chart and they look, let me tell you, they look very different. So you can <laughs> put, you know, profit and great cost of goods sold and all of those things on a chart. Financial data looks very different on a standard salvation chart. So I used to use Chartlytics and maybe it's coming back to Australia. But, um, yeah, we use a PDF of a chart in an iPad. Um, and so you can carry around all of your charts um, with you in an iPad and chart as you go because they're, one of the things about many of the tools is that you don't get an immediate chart in front of you when you're inputting the data. I'm not familiar with the, There are some new programs since I looked at them last, but what's, what um, Oglinsley, who pr- invented the chart, wanted was that you saw the behaviour unfolding before your eyes and you could make decisions as you go. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not the expert to talk about that. Rick Abena is an expert on, um, on those methods. And, but as yet within fit learning, we haven't found a tool that is as good and allows you to make as quicker decisions than, um, than a manual chart, either a paper chart or a PDF of it. So for teachers who you guys have really piqued their interest, they're like, okay, okay, I've, I've sipped a little bit of the Kool-Aid. I want to know more. <laughs> what do you suggest is the best first step for trying this out in your classroom or learning more? What do you suggest um, is the next is a good first step to take? That's a great question. Um, so do, do you want to ask that? Do you want me to go ahead? No, go ahead. I, and okay. I'll, uh... Well, the first thing is the precision teaching community are not that – all of our communities aren't amazing that we're in. <laughs> but because there is this, I guess, response effort involved in learning how to chart, um, traditionally precision teachers, you know, go out of their way to help you. Many people will supervise you. They have this thing of chart parents in the community of precision teaching, which is you reach out to someone and they help you learn how to chart. Rick Cabina has an amazing book on charting that will also teach you how to chart. Um, there are really good Facebook groups on, on charting. If you if you drop your name in there and say, I really want to learn how to chart, you will get a lot of responses of people offering to help you. Um, I love to help people chart. If anybody is interested and wants some direction, um, you can get my details after this podcast and reach out to me. I would love to help you. Um, so... Yeah, and there are there are often um, courses online on learning how to chart. Um, I haven't looked into those for quite a while, but I'm pretty sure if you search online, you'll find that people do that. And then the annual, if you really go, wow, I really want to get into this, I want to learn more, there is an annual conference. Unfortunately, last year it was virtual, but it was still amazing. But there's an annual conference. It's generally in really somewhere fun like Florida. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have only been once, but I will be going this year provided we can travel. Um, so that's a really amazing place to meet people that have been charting for a long period of time. It's called IPTC, International Precision Teaching Conference. has been going for a long, long time. Um, and there are people from all backgrounds, psychologists and teachers and OTs because Aditi's there, speech pathologists, you name it. Um, there are people there that will assist you and help you to chart and they have amazing workshops on charting and, and you know, really you can start simple and then get more complex in what the chart tells you. So there's a few avenues to learn how to chart. I love that. Love all the options. Yeah, there's lots of options. And I'm going to just mention Jonathan Amy. He is brilliant at teaching um, charting and he's done a lot of work with you know the muscle groups too so more PT OT angle um, so if you are a therapist looking for that I think he's a really good resource um, but Mandy and I um, are actually planning to delve into more case studies using precision teaching and also um, the method of precision teaching in our podcast too so we're hoping to offer some resources there Um, and then for OTs I am working on a book with Rick Cabina right now specifically specifically for OTs on precision teaching and uh, we're also going to have courses on um, our site for OTs. 
Awesome. Well, I will I will definitely link your podcast in the show notes and a lot of those resources that you mentioned. I'll link some of those Facebook groups in the show notes as well so everyone can can learn all the things precision teaching. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. This I you know, like I said, I love both of your your passion and I and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk through what it looks like cuz I think that starts to get people excited too of like, I I can see how this can work in my setting with my clients or my caseload. Um, so thank you both so much for, for spreading the knowledge on this and giving teachers a new idea of how to, how to teach skills. Thank you for having us, Sasha. Yeah. Thank you, Sasha. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.